Hey everyone, this is Ann Doherty, your host of Current, an energy podcast with Illum Advising. And today I'm excited to connect with my colleague, Ariana Zertsevi, who serves as an analyst in the Illum team and is an expert on environmental justice screening tools or EJ screening tools, which are widely used by a number of actors, state entities, academics, and communities to uh, move towards greater investment in historically disadvantaged or marginalized communities that have been harmed by energy investments in the past. On today's podcast, we're going to talk a bit about what environmental justice means. For those of you who are entering this topic in the first place, we'll talk a little bit about these screening tools and how they've been applied and the types of resistance that are that is met you know, in implementing these tools, both internally and externally, by folks looking to use them. And, you know, we'll get to know Ariana a little more as well and how she got started in this work. Now, I should say all of this work is um, really sort of drawing on Ariana's uh, paper that was recently featured by the Environmental Law Institute. Now, you have to check out the paper. It's on her bio on our website as well. And the paper is entitled Addressing Cumulative Impacts, Lessons from Environmental Justice Screening Tool Development and Resistance. We've also taken all this wonderful knowledge that Ariana has gathered and put it into a microsite for those of you who are interested in understanding EJ screening tools, and more importantly, state definitions of disadvantaged communities and how those are being defined and translated into these tools. And with that, Let's welcome Ariana to Current. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, it's always fun to be able to connect with our team and learn more about the work that um, they're doing. And in particular, this topic, which is really of interest to many of our team members, but also I think many of our listeners as well. Um, and today we're going to dig in a bit on um, a paper that you wrote and around environmental justice screening tools specifically titled um, Addressing Cumulative Impacts, Lessons from Environmental Justice Screening Tools, Development and Resistance. But um, I, you know, before we jump into talking about this subject matter, I would love to just learn a little bit more about you and your path to the work. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about what got you interested in this field of study and what ultimately inspired you to um, initiate writing this paper? Right. Um, so first, for a bit of context, in my undergraduate um, institution, I received a degree in environmental science. So I learned a lot of the mechanical, technical interactions between species and ecosystems. Um, but what I found in my undergraduate study was that there wasn't really a connection to people and the social aspects of the environment, the social implications of climate change, for example. And I felt like I was learning a lot of the how things were happening, um, environmental issues like pollution and climate change, but I wasn't learning a lot of the why it was happening or who these issues were affecting mostly. So I decided to continue my study, and I thankfully found a very multidisciplinary program at the University of Michigan, 
and I decided to study environmental justice because as soon as I went to school, immediately the discussion was of Flint and Detroit and all of the injustices that have been persistent in these communities for decades. And I was really motivated to continue that um, in my master's project work. So in thinking about that, um, was there a specific um, instance or experience that led you to really start to dig in a little deeper on, on this work? Yes. Um, first of all, speaking with community members from impacted areas, such as um, a community in Southwest Detroit that's often called 48217. Mm -hmm. but also going on what is called a toxics tour with my uh, class at the University of Michigan, where community members will drive you around their neighborhood and point out places that have been polluting for decades, places that have caught on fire, um, places along the River Rouge where apparently the environment is getting better, but when we as students saw it, we saw fish floating up face up in the water um, and just smelling how polluted the air was in those areas. It was truly a game changer because you can read about it and you can maybe see it, but to be there and understand how it's really a part of the everyday life of these communities is, is another thing entirely. Yeah. No, it must have been um, a, a really powerful experience. And then also to think about the communities themselves inviting people in to bear witness to this and what they're living with. You know, um, as we go through our discussion today, we're going to talk a lot about environmental justice and about these screening tools. But for folks who don't really understand the subject matter, I think it's really useful to just start with some basic definitions. So um, for the sake of our listeners who haven't been following this conversation for a while, can you define environmental justice for us? Of course. Um, environmental justice is often defined in the terms that the US EPA does, which talks about the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people when it comes to the development and implementation of environmental policies. So what that means essentially is that everyone has the right to be protected from environmental burdens like pollution or uh, toxic waste, but they also deserve the same environmental benefits such as access to green spaces, for example. That's such an important distinction because there's a real difference between harm and benefits. Um, can you talk a little bit about how people maybe define those, those two things even a little more, um, just to elaborate a bit as well? Environmental burdens and benefits? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So environmental burdens are often considered the stressors that might arise from industrial sources like air pollution, water pollution, uh, groundwater pollution, facilities that perhaps either are currently or in the past have emitted toxic waste. Um, brown fields are sometimes also considered an environmental burden. I know also diesel from highway traffic is considered an environmental burden for many communities. And conversely, the benefits are not only the absence of those environmental burdens, but the spaces that 
the environment really is protected, like a park um, or a green space. Um, certain communities are arguing for just more trees along roads in their areas because it brings an environmental benefit to their community, those types of things. Okay, great. Thank you. That's super helpful. And so um, when we talk about an environmental justice as a movement, uh, how long would you say that it's been around? So some scholars would definitely argue that environmental injustices have existed since the United States creation, obviously with the segregation of certain populations and the history of redlining, et cetera, in cities. But the modern environmental justice movement, as we know it today, is cited to have started in the early 1980s and into the 1990s, when there was a lot of national attention given to an environmental injustice. And a lot of academics and policymakers started to turn their attention to this rather complex issue to try to study it more. Okay. Was there a certain, um, there's something particular about that moment that really prompted this focus from federal government? So often the birth of the environmental justice movement is attributed to the protests in Warren County, North Carolina, where mm -hmm. a predominantly black community was um, being considered to be in proximity to uh, nuclear waste or hazardous waste. And the reason why the protests in Warren County are of note and gained a lot of traction at the time is that they, the community members employed a lot of the same tactics that were used during the civil rights movement. Okay. So you can see a lot of community members in photos from Warren County um, lying down with their hands up in the middle of the road and that gained a lot of national attention, which la later led to a lot of academic studies. Sure. So when we, um, uh, you know, think about that and this particular um, project that you um, have published, the paper that we're talking about, can you um, help us sort of talk about what these environmental justice screening tools are and like, why specifically they're important? Mm -hmm. So. An environmental justice screening tool is, in the simplest terms, uh, a data map, most often. And what these maps show is a combination of environmental and social factors that we often think about when thinking of environmental justice. Sure. So for example, showing places that emit certain pollutants, showing places that um, contain hazardous or toxic waste. And then you combine with that social factors like low-income communities, communities of color, um, communities that experience a lot of health issues already, like higher rates of cancer or respiratory illnesses. And when you put those two factors together, what you get is a visualization of these cumulative impacts. And that's important for governing bodies to really see and hone in on the areas that are of most need of resources and intervention. And um, for folks who need maybe like even a sort of more concrete understanding of, of these, what would you say are the more prominent ones in use right now and, um, and who's using them? In terms of screening tools, there are a couple of big players. Um, 
on the national level, the US EPA uses EJ screen. Mm-hmm. At the state level, the big contenders are California's Calenviro screen, which has been around since uh, 2012, I believe, mm-hmm. um, followed by states like Minnesota, um, and also the state of Washington is currently in process of creating one itself, um, but also states like New Jersey and Michigan are currently in development or have already attempted development of their own state-specific screening tool. Okay. So a lot of this work is being driven at the state level then in terms of uh, folks who are developing uh, EJ tools and um, really trying to put them into motion. Yes. So um, in addressing cumulative impacts, you talked to a number of different groups and stakeholders. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, who you spoke with and and what you were trying to learn in those conversations? Yes. Um, So again, for a bit of context, our research was conducted on behalf of our client, um, which was the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition. And the MEJC really wanted to learn about how states were using screening tools so that while Michigan was in development of one, they could advocate for the best practices of these tools. And so my co-authors and I really worked to talk to environmental justice community members, environmental justice organizations, um, academics, state officials, among other individuals who have lived in states that have a state-specific screening tool or have directly worked on the development of a state-specific screening tool. Okay. So when you were um, talking to them, what did you, what, what came forward as sort of the, the primary findings or the major findings of your work? Well, we focused on two things in our article. The first being how are tools currently being used and for what purpose? Um, And then the second being what groups would be potentially resistant to a tool for states that are perhaps thinking about developing their own. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of functions, we found that there were three common functions that states are currently using their tools. Um, Informational, so as I was saying before, these maps can be used Um, to visualize environmental justice, and it can also be used to just educate others as to what environmental justice is. Mm -hmm. They can also be used to inform regulations and policies at the state level, and also um, communities can use the information from these tools to advocate for specific resources. And those are not mutually exclusive. Um, A tool can serve one or all of those functions. I was going to ask, you know, um, as you mentioned, the tools provide a number of functions and they are, as you mentioned, sort of primarily sources of data visualized in many cases. When um, an organization, a policymaker, a community member, um, when one of these individuals or groups of constituents are interested in using an EJ tool, what would you recommend they consider when applying the tools to their their specific um, ends or goals? So depending on the complexity of the tool, um, a community member or a constituency can look at different variables that they feel are affecting them. So for example, 
even if a community is largely burdened with air pollution, there could be another community that is burdened by fertilizer runoff. And so there's a large applicability to these tools where you can focus in on different pollutants or different areas of concern based on certain variables. And I would recommend that you play around with the tool. They're usually very interactive and functional and user-friendly mm-hmm. um, and see what variables are of interest to you the most. And so when you're um, using them, as you mentioned, there are all these different data elements that feed into them and what are typically included. It might be worth actually talking about that a little more so people understand that. So. Mm-hmm. As folks listening know, we work in energy and energy has particular forms of environmental impacts, whereas other um, industries like, let's say, agriculture have others, different forms of um, environmental impacts. So can you talk about usually with the breadth of what's included in the tool and um, in most of these tools and and maybe also if it's relevant, what's not included from a, a burdens standpoint? So in terms of what is included the data that's part of a tool is typically data that is already collected at the state level or on the federal level. So um, particulate matter, diesel, ozone, these sort of things um, that are collected either at the national level or are collected based on individual reporting from specific industries. Um, Those are what are typically included into a tool and depending on the state's interest, those can be as expansive or restrictive as the state sees fit. In terms of what is missing, a lot of tools that my colleagues and I discovered might not have the breadth of social impacts that are necessary when discussing environmental justice due to a lot of things related to uh, privacy issues with health data, for example. Um, A lot of information is not collected at a granular level when it comes to language barriers or levels of education or information on race and income is only collected during the census, which is every 10 years. So it's not continuously updated. Yeah. So I think it's important as we, you know, talk about these tools to think about their benefits and limitations as, as um, different actors are looking to engage. So that's really helpful. Thank you. Of course. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit also about how you've been applying the knowledge you gained um, through this work, but also your more broad environmental justice knowledge to your work here at Illum? Are there, and uh, maybe to talk about specific um, examples of projects or pieces of work that you've been engaged in? Of course. Um, in terms of applying my environmental justice knowledge, it's really just using a different lens to look at different problems. So I think an issue that many industries face is that they are often quite siloed, either intentionally or unintentionally, and they are not looking at the structural or historical contexts of the work that they're doing. And so what I am trying to do in my work at Illum is to actively think about those contexts. I have been working for several months on a project with a utility in a Southern state which has a history of environmental and structural racism. Um, And so thinking about the 
customer base of that utility and how there might be a lack of trust within that demographic or um, how things should be marketed towards specific customers, I think is something that I advocated for when creating recommendations for how this particular utility should move forward with its renewable energy program. Right. You know, I think it's, um, I'm glad you raised that as an example, because I think often our clients have a tendency to um, forget that uh, the folks we're interacting with are bringing these histories with them and these experiences with them every time we're offering them something, even if it feels that that thing is of great benefit to them. And so um, they appreciate you bringing that perspective and, and working to help sensitize um, our clients because it also will hopefully make their efforts more effective too in, in those efforts. Now you and Amanda Dwelly, who's a, a director at Illum, um, have been collaborating quite a bit on a number of projects, but I think what will be interesting to um, folks listening or those who are really interested in this topic is that um, you two have been pulling together an environmental justice definition primer for um, some of the work that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it is that, that you two are up to? Yes, so Director Dwelly and I have been working for past couple of months collecting and cataloging different uh, definitions of environmental justice in the United States, so both at the federal and at the state level, and also collecting information on how states are defining an environmental justice community, um, what criteria are being used. And the purpose of collecting all of that information is to inform states who currently don't have um, a state definition of environmental justice or criteria to define an environmental justice community. I think it's important to see the complexity that environmental justice has and how differently different states can define it based on the histories of their particular state. Um, and so we're hoping that by putting a lot of this information in one place, states that are thinking about creating these definitions, that the informational burden is lifted in some ways. Sure. And it is a, one of those questions, I mean, not just informational burden, but just time and labor and seeking that that detail out, which is impressive, really, in what you all have been pulling together. Um, and Loom will be publishing, if not have already published this on our um, website for folks who are interested in really exploring that um, through a microsite that hopefully a community will also engage with. So one of the things um, that we will also be adding to this is a form for folks to have um, the opportunity ultimately to submit their knowledge or the information that they have um, to this sort of collective now body of, of work. Um, so it's very cool and really exciting and we're excited to be able to offer that as an opportunity for continuing dialogue and enabling others to do this work. You know, as people are using these tools, um, it's likely that they're going to encounter different forms of resistance in the um, use of them for any number of reasons. What types of resistance have you seen to the use of EJ screening tools and where does that emerge? So through the discussion of screening tools with our interviewees, we found that there were two common sources of resistance. 
um, which we call internal and external. Um, internal refers to the resistance that might come within a state government um, or agency, and external is any group that's outside of a state government or agency. The external groups we were already as researchers somewhat familiar with um, through environmental justice literature, because there are common groups like um, industries or opposing political forces that may resist a tool that they see as adding more regulation to their business practices. Um, and so that was not as surprising to us to learn through our interviewees. Internally, however, we learned that there was a lot of general wariness and slight resistance to the idea of a tool while it was being proposed due to the fact that a tool could really restructure a lot of processes that are happening at the state level. So for example, if a state creates a tool and it's needed to inform a permitting process that will entirely restructure how a Department of Environmental Quality or Control performs its duties on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's something that we didn't realize as researchers was um, a potential source of resistance that the resources and capacity of a state government or agency can really be affected by um, the use of a tool. Um, so we've covered a lot today and um, have gone through many um, different topics. And I'm just curious to know if there's anything that you want to discuss or that you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't had a chance to dig into yet or something um, that you'd like to make sure folks are aware of. I guess as a final thought concerning um, an environmental justice screening tool, uh, I do want to say that these tools are very important and very useful, but that they're really only showing what communities already know is happening uh, to them and that their function shouldn't be to surpass community testimony. They should really be working together and we all should try to incorporate uh, community voices in these types of decisions because they have been trying to tell the wider public them for decades. I, I think that's such an important point to make. And I'm really glad that you raised it because, um, you know, as you mentioned, it is the community that uh, is both burdened and benefited by these investments. And it's worth centering their experience in our process of making decisions, as you've said. Um, well, this has been really great. I've really enjoyed talking to you and learning more both about this topic and about um, the work that you've done. And I do think um, your paper addressing cumulative impacts is also a great read for anybody who's interested in a primer. I found it really useful myself, just um, even, even the introduction alone provides a nice history, I think, of, of these tools. And um, I learned many things. So I'll also encourage our listeners to make sure that they um, get out there and read this. And um, we'll be sure to post it on, um, on our website too. So thank you. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to connect. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks everyone for joining us today. And Ariana, thank you for taking the time to connect with us. 
We are so excited to see where this research takes you and how it helps to move our industry forward. Current is produced by Illum's production department and music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We look forward to talking to you next time.